Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We open the program with just a little bit of a Joe Hill song. Uh, this is There is Power. Would you have freedom from wage slavery and join in the grand industrial band? Would you from misery and hunger be free and come do your share like a man? There is power, there is power in a band of working men when they stand hand in hand. That's the power, that's the power that must rule in every land, one industrial union grand. Would you have sharing the gold in the sky and live in a shack away in the back? Joe Hill, labor icon and songwriter for the Industrial Workers of the World, or Wobblies, was executed by a Utah firing squad on November 19, 1915, after being convicted of two murders in a controversial trial. The 100th anniversary, of course, is coming up. There will be many events in Utah and other places. And Jeremy Harmon and Tom Harvey with Salt Lake Tribune have been conducting new interviews with biographers, musicians, and others. That reporting will debut in the Sunday Salt Lake Tribune. And we welcome in uh, Jeremy Harmon, who's Director of Photography for the trip. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. And uh, reporter Tom Harvey, thanks. And it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I wanted to play this uh, clip, and uh, you've given us some clips, uh, Jeremy, thank you very much, uh, from those interviews. You interviewed uh, a biographer, Gib Smith, uh, did a biography in the late 60s, I think. That's correct, yeah, yeah his book was published in uh, 1969. So um, this is uh, cut number 52. We'll hear Gib Smith talking about why we should be even interested in Joe Hill now, 100 years later. Why is Joe Hill still even remembered 100 years later? Swedish immigrant, poor. It's amazing. He's become a folk hero. What interests me is that Joe Hill symbolized something in the West and in our country that I responded to. What was that? Joe Hill came to symbolize the struggle of the working people against this oligarchy of capitalists. He symbolized somebody who stood up against injustice, and he symbolized uh, somebody without any real power standing up against guys with power. It's by his wits, and I think that's important. So there's Gibbs Smith talking about uh, the, the lasting legacy of, of uh, Joe Hill. So let me start with the Tom Harvey. What um, what would you say to that question? It's uh, this is going to get big here in the in the fall. Uh, it's going to be Joe Hill all the time. Uh, it's going to seem like that, and uh, you know a lot of people say justifiably so. We'll hear from family members of uh, the victims and the murder he was convicted of, murders he was convicted of, who, who are saying that uh, no. But what what does Joe Hill mean today? And I think he means um, probably a lot of what he meant back then. I, one of the things that struck me in, in uh, reporting this story was the fact that he was instantly a martyr uh, at his execution, even before his execution. And I think that's still what resonates today is this idea of this uh, talented songwriter, but also a, a working stiff guy who... Uh, was executed during this time when there was such horrible labor conditions and uh, there was uh, workers were impoverished and and uh, uh, killed on the job and killed during for for striking and uh, 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 there was just this huge in, uh, backlash among industry and and the power brokers of the day and with the collaboration of the police and everything and and here was this little uh, you know, this uh, uh, tall, skinny union guy who was very talented, who uh, may or, or may not have committed uh, a murder. And it just, the I think the injustice uh, that some people believe uh, happened just uh, resonates still today. Jeremy mm. Harmon, tell, tell me a little about uh, Joe Hill. What, uh, what kind of a guy was he? Well, uh, I, I th apart from musician, we'll get into that as well. Yeah, well, I, I think Tom hit a lot on it, and uh, 
in the Gibbs quote, I think is really good too, because you've got this guy who, um, you know, he's an immigrant. He comes over here with um, like millions of others at the time period coming over here, looking for a better life and um, completely disillusioned when he gets here. There, there isn't one, you know, like uh, his um, first job that anybody knows about when he arrived, you know, through Ellis Island was cleaning spittoons in a bar. You know, that's not exactly the American dream streets paved with gold kind of mm-hmm. idea. Um, he ends up bouncing around the West, um, you know, all kinds of jobs, uh, you know, working in mines, working as a longshoreman, working uh, as a mechanic, you know, pretty much anything he could find. And in every spot that he's at, um, you know, it, it is, it's just, uh, you know, horrible labor conditions, horrible safety, horrible wages. And um, by, you know, he arrived in the United States in 1902, and eight years later, uh, he's joined with uh, the IWW. Mm. Let's, uh, I think this would be a good time to hear just a little bit of a song, The Preacher and the Slave. Uh, Jeremy, set this up for us, The Preacher and the Slave. We're going to hear 30 seconds of this. So this is, uh, of Hill's songs, this is arguably his best known. Um, This one, um, he really goes after... uh, some of the religious groups who were um, campaigning against um, some of the union activities. Um, specifically in this one, uh, the Salvation Army, um, he refers to them as the Starvation Army in the song because uh, um, rather than helping people, they were trying to get donations from everybody. And, you know, if you don't have any money to donate, you give it to this church, uh, you're going to not have as much to spend on food for yourself. Um, the song, uh, um, one thing that's interesting about the song is he coins the phrase pie in the sky. Um, that's a that's a colloquialism a lot of people are familiar with, and that was originated in this song. Mm. Um, so let's hear. And by the way, uh, you've uh, solicited new recordings of, of yeah the, songs. the the songs we're going to hear throughout this are um, all performed by uh, musicians in Salt Lake City. Yeah, great. So let's hear just a little bit of uh, the preacher and the slave. This is a song of Joe Hill. So he's counteracting the message of Salvation Army, for one thing, using a pop tune, hymn tune uh, there to get to get the word out. Why why was he using hymn tunes? Well, there's a variety of reasons for that. So um, one of the reasons was is these were s- melodies that people were already going to know. You just had to teach them new words. So um, you didn't need this uh, – yeah. It just the the songs were already going to be familiar with people. And then there's also kind of a subversive thing in this because um, so like the Salvation Army would send their band down to um, disrupt IWW rallies. Uh, this song in particular was based on a, a hymn called "In the Sweet By and By." So the church band shows up. They start playing this song. Uh, you know, this is the days before PA's. Speakers were just up on boxes, speaking as loudly as they can. Brass band shows up. You're not going to be able to hear, hear the speaker. So they start playing the song. Joe Hill wrote, rewrote the words. They can just start singing along. Mm-hmm. And it turns this uh, disruption on its head and becomes even more of a rallying point for the uh, union members who were there. Mm-hmm. Very clever. Uh, wh- what was the uh, Salvation Army's dog in this fight? What, uh, what didn't they like about the, the Wobblies? Uh, I think the only people who liked the Wobblies were the Wobblies. <laughs> you know, like they, they just... Um, there's this idea that, uh, um, you know, Wobblies were primarily a, a union of immigrants. This is a time of rampant uh, anti-immigrant feelings, you know, like there's a lot of xenophobia. And here's this group that's organizing all these folks so that they can have, you know, more of a fair share of what's going on in the country. So um, there's this idea that if you supported the IWW, I think it's fair to say that um, you weren't a member of polite society. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Uh, uh, church groups, um, different civic groups, things like that. You want to, you know, there's this idea to maintain a, a feeling of a kind of order and calm, and there's a, a 
you know, you want to be a part of that polite society. That's that's how you're successful. That's how you're getting ahead. It's all that stuff. And and the the IWW, um, were putting a big spotlight on everything that was wrong going on in society at that time. And people don't like paying attention to what's wrong. Mm. You know, they just want everything to be super awesome all the time. Right. And it wasn't. So Tom Harvey, what what um, pick that up? What was wrong? What were the Wobblies? protesting against and maybe compare and contrast them to the there were other labor unions weren't there uh, yes there were but the wobblies were probably the most radical of of them their manifesto uh, uh, reason for being then and, and reason for being now because they still exist these days although uh, uh, they're a much smaller organization but it was to overturn the industrial order they were against capitalism and capitalists and they wanted to uh, um, they very much wanted to have worker ownership of industries, and um, that was their focus. Um, you had, of course, other labor unions, uh, I think the FL, uh, during that period, which that um, uh, at one point you know, went on to accept the fact that capitalism is the, the established system and you've got to work within it. But the Wobblies uh, were, weren't for that. They were were considered quite radical then. I think we would consider them quite radical today. Yeah, Jeremy Harmon, they, they included everybody, right? The labor unions usually would have a you'd, you'd center around a certain industry, but Wobblies wanted everybody. Yeah, so you had trade trade union, excuse me, trade unionism, and then industrial unionism. Industrial unionism was if you're a working stiff and you're not the boss, join us. And that was the IWW's thing. They weren't. Uh, um, there, there's kind of a practical reason for that, in that um, they could represent and organize unskilled labor as well as you could skilled labor. Like they, you know, everybody they felt um, needed to have a voice, needed to have somebody watching out for their interests, and you know, there wasn't um, an organization at the time that was interested in organizing unskilled labor mm-hmm. as well as. And so everybody, right? Everybody. Children? Yeah. Prostitutes? That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's I, I know one of the songs. Before, yeah. before we went out there, you were telling me this. So uh, tell yeah. me about that. Well, so uh, in what regard? I mean, in one of Joe Hill's songs, he talks about, um, uh, it's a song called We Will Sing One Song. And he's talking about, um, um, you know, we're going to sing a song that points a finger at the people who are uh, um, in their uh, who are causing the problems, which in in their point of view is the, you know, the capitalist class, the owner class, and then we're going to sing another song um, where we're going to stand up and defend the people who need to be defended, and um, one of those um, groups that he talks about is uh, the girls below the line, um, referencing prostitutes, and he in in the verse in that particular verse in the song he points out the hypocrisy of uh, um, people who point a finger at, um, you know. Uh, prostitutes and being upset at them and, you know, scorning them, but at the same time, um, visiting them and making money from them. Mm. You know, it's, uh, like I said, they were shining a light on a lot of, uh, the IWW and these songs are, were shining a light on a lot of things that polite society didn't exactly want to light right. shown upon. So they would have been seen as radical. I mean, very radical. We'll talk a little bit about that. Let's hear a bit of this uh, song. We will sing one song. By the way, who who, who do we have uh, singing this? Uh, this is a local group called uh, Six Feet in the Pine. Okay. We will sing one song, song of Joe Hill.
That's We Will Sing One Song. That's a, a song of uh, Joe Hill. Tom Harvey, I wonder if we could uh, maybe set the context a little more, and then we'll bring Joe Hill to, to Utah and get into the uh, the, the murders uh, and, and the aftermath. But this is, you know, the 1890s is famous for anarchism. This is, you know, people blowing up heads of state. And uh, so you could see nervousness on the part of just about everybody there. Um, and you have these violent clashes between capital and labor um, and, and some some horrible things going on. You know, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory burns down, um, for example. What about uh, in Utah? I guess the Utah participated in these sorts of clashes as well? There were, uh, yes, yeah, uh, to a certain extent. Um, there was, uh, and Jeremy, remind me when this, what the, the riot was that... Uh, 1913. 1913, there was a, uh, it was a streetcar riot, uh, Right. That there was a well. There was a streetcar strike in 1907, but um, uh, 1913 there was a riot in downtown Salt Lake City. Um, um, that's an interesting story in of itself. There had been a strike. Uh, it was the Tucker strike in um, Spanish Fork Canyon. It was a railroad strike uh, organized by the IWW. Um, Utah Copper and some others sent some of their private security folks in. Um, they, they showed up with the train and put a bunch of wobblies on the train and took them to the Utah County Jail. Um, they, some of them spend as long as two months in jail after being arrested by private copper company security guards, which is interesting. Um, anyway, one of these guys got out, and they were, um, they were throwing a rally for him in Salt Lake City, uh, right in the heart of downtown. It's the intersection of um, 100 South and Regent Street right across the street from where Cheesecake Factory is now, which I think is uh, pretty amazing. But um, anyway, uh, the IWW is starting to have this rally, and the same group of uh, copper company guys who had arrested these folks showed up and attacked them, just started beating on them. Um, They were clubbing them. The speaker got hit with a gun and knocked unconscious. Um, One of the Wobblies pulled out a pistol and started shooting at people because they were being attacked. Um, the police come in. They're rounding people up. Um, it's interesting. The only people who were arrested um, were Wobblies. And then the uh, when they complained and suggested that maybe the people that attacked them should be arrested as well, um, they were told, no, those people are good patriots. Um, we don't want to do that. Um, they love America too much. We're not going to arrest them. All the papers heralded the guy who led the attack as a hero the next day. Um, and so this would be the year before the the murders took place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was about four months before the murders took place. And then another piece of this, and we've made reference to this a little bit, is um, Im- immigration. A lot of the workers would be immigrants, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so there'd be a conflict there. Sure, and they would come in to work. Um, you know, the copper mine. They would uh, work the coal mines. Uh, they would work the uh, silver mine. Uh, uh, silver mines up at Park City and stuff. And so you had uh, all of these different immigrant uh, communities uh, around. And um, one of the one of the ones, of course, was were Swedes, which Joe Hill was born in Sweden, and and uh, so he he uh, fell in with a group of Swedes. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing that's interesting with the immigrant community is that I think it's important to um, to remember that a lot of time when um, when it came to the workforce, these people were seen as um, completely interchangeable and, and expendable even. And there was a uh, kind of a idea that existed that if you had a bunch of um, – if you had a mine and you've got a bunch of immigrant laborers working in the mine and there's some kind of disaster and you have a choice between saving uh, – the workers or saving the mules, save the mules because it's a lot harder and a lot more expensive to train a mule to go down into the mine than it was to get an immigrant to go down into the mine. Mm-hmm. And so if there was some kind of calamity, get the mules out of there. If the people die, eh, we'll get more people. Mm-hmm. So uh, you could see the, the seeds of radicalization then, people. This, this is why people would be attracted to the Wobblies because they're, they're preaching takeover of of the of, of industry by workers mm-hmm. and and of course better working conditions and better pay and and those types of issues too yeah but they're seen as is completely radical mm-hmm. right and and uh, and the big i guess the theme of the the state of the powers that be is to to keep order we don't want anarchy 
Yeah, historically there, um, you know, like the time when Joe Hill was in the state, um, Utah hasn't been a state for very long. And Utah went through quite a lot to become a state. You know, like there was a, um, there were the Reed Smoot hearings, you know, where uh, um, Mormonism was seen as such a, a strange thing that they had to have four years of hearings to decide if uh, a man who was elected, legally elected to be a senator should be allowed to be a senator just because he was LDS. And so there were a lot of, um, I think there was a lot of uh, desire on the part of Utah officials to look as normal and as patriotic and as a part of the system as anybody. And so there was a, um, you know, uh, you know, Utah had a rough go becoming a state and now they are a state and there's this real desire to just fit in and be a part of the federal system really. And, uh, um, these wobblies come along and are making that kind of hard and they didn't like that very much. Let's take a break. When we come back uh, more on Joe Hill, labor icon, who was executed by a firing squad in Utah, November 19th, 1915. This was, would have been at the prison, which would have been Sugar House. Sugar House Park. Sugar House Park. And so I think uh, some of the events obviously will be happening at Sugar House. That's correct. Uh, coming up, uh, I think, as early as next month. Uh, next week, really. Yeah. Next week? Okay. Yeah. And you can read all about it, and it's not only read, but view videos and hear, see songs being performed. It's a multimedia uh, site that will be happening at the Salt Lake Tribune. And once this is up, you can go to joehill.sltrib.com for all of this. Uh, this is going up on Sunday. That's correct. So tell me what's, what people can read on Sunday. Oh, wow. <laughs> There's going to be a <laughs> lot. Uh, we've been working on this for months. Um Tom's written a really nice piece on uh, the Morrison family, who they are. You know, this is a family that, um, you know, got unwittingly pulled into this whole thing. And um, for the last hundred years, it's been a um, real source of pain for the family. So we've got, we've got an examination of that. We've got a piece examining his, um, uh, his, place in uh, American kind of like pop music culture, uh, you know, his, uh, his contributions there. Um, beyond that, we've got, uh, you know, boy, we've got all sorts of stuff. Um, one of the things that we have that I think is really interesting is we found, um, well, we, uh, we were able to get our hands on a memoir that was written by a little girl who uh, kind of lived around the corner from where Joe Hill lived when he was in Murray. And um, she describes what it was like growing up as a girl in the community, and um, her family were were acquainted with Hill. And um, you know, th- these these this is a group of people who just lived in abject poverty, like this whole neighborhood. And um, you know, seeing that and reading that, I think it would be really interesting to a lot of people. So it'll be happening on Sunday as you pick up the Salt Lake Tribune or go to their website. Uh, sltrib.com. Um, and we have with us uh, Tom Harvey, who's a reporter, and uh, Jeremy Harmon, director of photography. They've been working on uh, a big uh, Joe Hill project, and that's premiering on Sunday. We're talking about it on the program today. What does Joe Hill mean today? We'll get into the murders, the trial, and the aftermath, and we'll hear from the Morrisons. We'll also hear from Gibbs Smith on whether he thinks Joe Hill was uh, guilty or not. This, of course, accelerated the uh, the process of uh, making Joe Hill a martyr for the for the cause and he's continued to to be so 100 years later so why uh, a lot of events will be happening here on the 100th anniversary uh, coming up more following the break programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and devour Utah a bi-monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene with a spotlight on cooking local happenings and libations Available at newsstands or online at devourutah.com. What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Skyroom, 
Open Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., closed Saturdays and Sundays. Located on the fourth floor of the Taggart Student Center. Menu details available at usu.edu dining. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We haven't changed formats here, or, uh, we're, but we're talking about Joe Hill, who's a songwriter for the Wobblies, Industrial Workers of uh, the World. That's near my job to thee. Jeremy, tell me about that song. So that song is another one that he based on one of his on a hymn. It's based on the uh, "Nearer My God to Thee." Um, this song in particular is about. Um, uh, it was a common practice back then that if you wanted to get a job, uh, if you were you know working class guy and you wanted to get a job in the in a mine or something like that, uh, you had to go through a hiring agency. A lot of these agencies um, would um, would take advantage of and exploit people. You had to pay a fee to get a job. So you'd pay this fee. They'd find you a job. Uh, well, they wouldn't always find you a job. Sometimes you'd get on a train that you think would taking, was taking you to a job site. You'd get out there, and there wouldn't be anything. And so um, these um, agencies were you know, extorting money from people who didn't have money and who didn't have power to turn around and do something about it. And that's what this song's about. Mm-hmm. Um, um, one of the, uh, They called them sharks. The, uh, the, the workers would call these, um, you know, dishonest agents, sharks. And so uh, this song ends with the lines, you know, uh, and when that shark I see, you bet your boots that he near his God will be. Just leave all that to me. Mm. You know, it's, uh, they're going to fight back. Mm. Um, who uh, was the band there? That's a band called the Utah County Swellers. Okay. Um, that one, um, I don't know if that would have been performed exactly that way. It sounds like they're updating it a, a bit, and especially on the last one, the Preacher and the Slave seemed like kind of a spare you know bruce springsteen in his nebraska days uh, sort of a sure yeah so th- these songs um um it's not like there's a right way to perform them mm-hmm. you know what i mean like these are songs that have uh, been passed on you know really generation to generation um starting uh, like uh preacher and the slave was first published in 1911 so the song's 104 years old well you know there, there are no recordings of it from 1911. Like right. Nobody knows okay. how it was originally performed. So it's, you know, there's a lot of this stuff that's open to interpretation. One of the things that I think is interesting is, um, you know, the, the melodies and the messages, uh, they have a, there's a lot of historical significance in those things. So people tend to leave those alone. But, um, yeah, you, you, there's punk bands that play these songs. There are folk bands that play these songs. There are rock bands that play these songs. Mm. There's not one right way to do it. They're still living. I imagine Joe Hill would, 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 would be pleased by that. There's, they're still going. Yeah, one would assume. Yeah. So let's uh, jump into the, the events in uh, 1914. Um, let's hear, um, let's hear uh, number 54 here. This is, uh, this is the Morrison family on the death of uh, John and Arling. Let's hear this. They were in the store restocking for Monday. Saturday night, doing the usual close-up, um, counting the money, putting things away, getting things organized, getting ready to bring home all the f- fresh fruits and vegetables because they had no refrigeration. And two guys came through the front door, and Grandpa was bent over picking up a sack of potatoes, and the guy said, we got you now, and shot him in the back. That, uh, Joe Hill was the one that killed him. And then John tried to help and took the gun out of the cooler and shot Joe Hill in the chest. I believe it was in the chest with it. And of course, didn't kill him, injured him. And then we thought the gentleman with him was uh, Otto Applequist, and he shot and killed John. It was a hard loss for a young family. And it had its effects on us, the next generation, definitely. This was our grandfather we were deprived of knowing, and a wonderful uncle that my father idolized, and he lost him.
so this is um, these are descendants of, uh, of the Morrisons. Tom Harvey, you, you talked with the, the Morrisons. Of course, they 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 believe to this day that uh, Joe Hill did the murder. Yes, they do very fervently. Mm-hmm. They believe that. Yes. So tell tell me a bit about the this. Uh, so the, they were in their grocery store. They they were murdered. Mm-hmm. Why did suspicion fall on Joe Hill? Well. You heard uh, them describe how um, Arlene, one of the, the Morrison sons who was killed, uh, shot at, uh, or probably shot at, one of the attackers. And uh, the thought was at the time, because they found some blood outside the store, that somebody had, one of the attackers had been wounded. The very same night, Joe Hill shows up at a doctor's office in Murray with a wound into the chest. And uh, so once the doctors treated him, report this to the police, he's instantly a suspect and arrested because of that, the timing of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's hear, let's hear a little bit more here. This is uh, Mike and Merlin discussing uh, their dad. Um, And these are, they're descended from, at least one of these is maybe both descended from the younger son who's crouching behind the. So that yeah, both the, the men shelves. This, yeah, both the both the guys here. Um, so so John Gibson and his son Arling are killed in the store. Uh, Arling was seventeen. There's a thirteen-year-old son named Merlin, um, who uh, was hiding in the back room mm-hmm. as this happened and kind of got a look at the at the at, at the men who attacked. Yeah, tra- traumatic event for the whole family. So Michael and Merlin are his grandsons the okay. ones we're going to hear here okay let's see let's hear yeah this. they're john's grandsons uh they're merlin's sons. right right sorry okay. yeah yeah uh so this is number 55 here and arlene never made it out of the story grandpa they got to the operating table in, in the hospital and he died there um and my dad was behind some shelves basically and saw the whole thing but you know froze he was 13 so the police came um, they um, took my father home, okay, and they were, they only lived just a few blocks or two blocks or something from where the store was. Um, he was very, very much affected by that his whole life. As you could imagine, uh, you know, thirteen-year-old kid, and you you witness this. One one of his, I think, is what his son, or his grandson, uh, says in the, the part we don't have here, that uh, his story never changed. He he was sure it was Joe Hill. Yeah, he was con- convinced all his life that it was Joe Hill. Yeah, and yeah, and that's passed on to these grandkids who are mm-hmm. were listening to here and children of the of the. Uh, of that generation. Yeah. Uh, he also says um, that uh, in his experience, uh, if you tell a lie, then you, then you can't remember what the lie was and the story changes. And so that's evidence to him, the grandson, that his grandfather was telling the truth. Yeah, uh, he, he says that, that the, his, his uh, father, uh, Merlin, uh, who was the witness, uh, never changed his story over the years and years and, and told the stories many times. So Jeremy Harmon, what, what happens next? Uh, Joe Hill's rounded up. He's charged with the murder. And uh, I guess you have the eyewitness, the, the young man. Uh, you have the evidence that he's been shot. The, the assailant was shot. That matches up. What are some of the factors which would uh, tend toward Joe Hill's innocence? Well, um, first of all, Joe Hill wasn't the only guy who got shot that night. Um, there were other people who showed up various places with gunshot wounds. So, eh, you know, um, that's not necessarily a, uh, that doesn't really, the fact that he got shot that night doesn't really prove anything. Um, Hill, st- uh, um, Hill said that, uh, he and a friend of his had uh, gotten in a fight over a woman that they were both interested in and in a fit of rage, his friend shot him. Um, he, um, he never said who the friend was. He never said who the woman was. Um, his position was basically, uh, I don't have to prove to you I'm innocent. You have to prove I'm guilty. 
um, Merlin's, um, the 13-year-old boy, um, his testimony in trial, and uh, even when he when they first brought him to the jail to identify Hill, um, his uh, his testimony was that Hill was roughly the same height and shape as as one of the men he saw in the store. Um, that's hardly conclusive, right? Um, but but that um, that's what's in all the newspapers from the time period was that you know well yeah he's kind of the same size and shape as the man who. Uh, I saw shoot my father. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, um, one of the things uh, um, initially um, when the when it was reported, uh, the first Salt Lake Tribune headline was that uh, some holdups had killed Morrison in an act of revenge. Um, there there was never anything to suggest that Hill had any prior relationship with John Morrison. So. Um, once, uh, once they started moving down the track of charging Hill and starting on the trial, the revenge story, um, just kind of disappeared from coverage and from, from conversation. Um, it just, it was no longer there. Um, Morrison, um, on his own did, uh, he had been involved in some, uh, um, gunfights previously. Um, he, he had had people come after him and try to, try to harm him before this uh, and uh, had been in shootouts with people. Um, he had been a police officer for a while. There, you know, there were people who um, would have been interested in harming him. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's, uh, the case against Hill was largely circumstantial and the state even acknowledged that, that, you know, they, we've got a circumstantial case here, but he did it. Mm. Interesting. Uh, so let's hear from, uh, let's hear from Gibb Smith. This is a, uh, Hill's biographer, um, and uh, he, he's talking. He, he's saying that he thinks the, that Joe Hill was innocent. This is number fifty-three. Uh, perhaps we don't have that uh, that clip ready. Okay, here we go. And I think uh, Joe Hill was not guilty myself. But I think he would never have been executed today under the laws we have today on the evidence they had in those days. I don't think it was a fair trial. I think Joe Hill's lawyers were a joke. It just is shocking the power of uh, the state once they get on the track to get rid of somebody. It's really awful. And not to have a clear evidence saying somebody's guilty and but still executing them is really awful because we're all kind of guilty because we're part of the state well that's pretty powerful we're all kind of guilty because we're part part of the state if if the state got it wrong then then we're we're all guilty in that um so this uh, proceeded to trial uh went forward um and uh, joe hill is convicted I, i think Quite soon here, this becomes a cause celeb, doesn't it? Wobblies at least rally around. That's true. Yeah, um, I, I think um, I th- one of the things the state didn't really count on is the fact that Hill was already a really well-known figure. Uh, you know, his songs had been published all over the world. They were being sung at uh, rallies and strikes all over North America you know, and in uh, some other parts of the world. Um, and so, uh, um, there was a, a really, uh, strong idea and, um, you can make a really strong case for this idea that Hill was, um, convicted because of his role in the union. Um, I mean, even the, the day he was executed, um, the Salt Lake Telegram, uh, which was an afternoon paper at the time Hill was executed in the morning. The Salt Lake Telegram's headline on the day of the execution was IWW must leave Utah. You know, it was, uh, um, uh, um, there was one woman who came and spoke in Salt Lake City who was a really prominent IWW leader, speaker at the time named Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. And she gave a speech in uh, May of 1915 where she told the crowd that Hill was, had been uh, um 
convicted in an effort to get uh, because they thought that that would uh, or Hill was going to be executed in an effort to um, crush the power of the Union. Um, You know, he very quickly became, um, yeah, politicized. It was a uh, I don't even know if that's the right word, but um, he it was celebrated. There was this big letter writing campaign to try to get him free. The governor's office was receiving thousands of letters from all over the world. Um, demanding a new trial, demanding that he be set free. Some of them were threats. Um, you know, it was uh, it was really quite remarkable. The president of the United States um, interceded and tried to get a stay. Um, he succeeded in getting a stay of execution once. He didn't succeed the second time. Um, the ambassador from Sweden was getting involved. Um, Helen Keller even appealed to the president of the United States on Hill's behalf. Um, it, w- it was a really big deal. So there's a, there's enough doubt apparently you know from a lot of people that that he was guilty let's hear another uh, let's hear Gibbs smith again uh setting the context this is uh, number 51 utah was trying to be a respectable state after the terrible struggle they had to become a state and they didn't want to be out of step with the federal government at all. But Joe Hill made them be out of step. Because it turned out that they felt like their honor and respect needed to be upheld by the president, but he was on the other side. So they're they're trying to thread the needle here. What do you think, Tom Harvey? What do you think about that? They're trying to they're they're trying to not be this weird state, you know? They've had this long history that Trevor Harmon talked about early in the program. Ended up, they're they're out of step with the president in the end. But out of step with the president. But if you read uh, a lot of the letters that are in the uh, uh, archives that were sent to Governor Spry at the time, uh, there was a lot of support for for what he had done at okay. the same time. So it was an international cause, I think, and I think it you know it resonates today about and in Utah's reputation uh, even internationally. Uh, but at the same time, there was that that a real sentiment, I think, within the state and and also from all of those people that wrote in saying, "Way to go, Governor!" Hmm. By the way, it's uh, President Woodrow Wilson. In case you didn't know that uh, part of the history. Uh, before we go to break, let me uh, let's conclude this part of it. Let's uh, uh, track number sixty here. This is uh, one of the Morrison family talking about uh, some of the history here as well. Here's Joe Hill rearing his ugly head again, and. Uh, there's stories of events. It didn't really anger me, but it made me kind of tired of hearing that when I felt that Joe Hill got his just desserts when the governor of the state told the president of the United States to keep his nose out of the state of Utah and went ahead and ordered Joe Hill executed. And I felt that that should have ended it, but it hasn't. So who's this? This is a this member is, of the Morrison family. Right. This is a, a man named John Arlene Morrison. Okay. All right. He's Marilyn's, Marilyn, who we heard earlier, he's her brother. Okay. Uh, so he's expressing the views of the family there. Their, their family members were murdered. Joe Hill was convicted, as they see it, rightly according to the rules of evidence at that time. And and yet, you know, we keep having Joe Hill, Joe Hill. And uh, it, and. and they have been angry and bitter for many, many years over this, that they feel that their side of the story has been neglected. Their, the pain that it caused their family over generations has um, not, you know, hasn't been part of the story. It's just Joe Hill the martyr, Joe Hill the martyr, and it comes up, you know, at anniversaries like it's uh, happening this year, too. Yeah. This is what Marilyn says. Um in many cases, we hear about the person who committed the murder or the event, but we don't hear what happens to the family of the victim. Nobody seems to be interested. So I, I guess it, it, at least you're interviewing them now, and hopefully they're, I guess they hope their story gets out. Oh, very much so. They very much want to be this year with the anniversary of the execution. They very much want the, uh, a focus on the victims of the crime. Mm-hmm. Merlin goes on to say, generation after generation, why do they have to keep dragging it up? Just stirs it up for us. 
she talked earlier in the clip we heard that uh, this uh, this has affected them through the generations. Uh, he, she goes and say he wasn't a hero. Uh, I'm not sure this was her, but the Morrison family. He wasn't a hero until after he was dead. They made him a hero. They used him for the cause. Jeremy Harmon, I guess that that is true. They used him for the cause. Of course, he nearing his death, uh, I think, embraced this. Yeah, I think um, you know uh, one of the things that she brings up there is you know. Uh, year after generation after generation why do they keep bringing this up um i i think a lot of that is because um you know there there isn't a clear cut yes he did it you know there there is no real forensic evidence there it's it's um there's this shaky um eyewitness testimony you know they you know uh I mean, Merlin was Merlin was 13 years old, and he sees this horribly traumatic thing. You know, you you, uh, you it's important to have a lot of empathy for for this young man and, and what he went through. Um, his uh, testimony at the time, uh, it's interesting because you know he you know it, it just it wasn't it just wasn't conclusive. You know, it it, uh, it, it just wasn't. And then um, and then you've got the added layer of Hill's songwriting and, you know, he, he was already kind of a, a legend and really famous within his circles. And, um, and there was really strong anti-union uh, sentiment. I mean, there still is strong anti-union sentiment. So there were a lot of forces that kind of compounded upon each other to make this guy into a larger than life figure. And so, um, uh, I th- I th- people I think are just really interested in that and really drawn to that, and um, you start reading about it, and it just the the, the tale just sucks you in because there's uh, there's so much to it. You want to be able to solve it. You want to be able to find the one clue that says, okay, definitively we know it was this person who shot John Morrison. It, it just it, you, nobody has found that yet. And you know, one of the enduring mysteries here on the other side too is why didn't Joe Hill act to save himself. So he had this the story about um, he was shot in a fight over a woman, and and um, but he would never. I think Jeremy said this earlier. He would never name the woman. He would never name the guy who shot him. He would never say who shot him. Even to the point where uh, he was told that this could save his life, and he he never did that. Why Why didn't he? Do you think? Um. I think part of it is his idealism that Jeremy mentioned earlier. I don't have to prove my innocence. You have to prove that I'm guilty. And um, I, at a certain point, and I think your question touched on this, he saw himself as a martyr also. And, and you know, here was a guy just dirt poor. He'd been shot, you know, twice within a, a three or four days because uh, he was shot when he was arrested. And, you know, just be had the crap beat out of him, and uh, maybe he just decided that he was more valuable uh, as a martyr to the cause. Mm-hmm. Let's take another break. We'll come back. We'll talk about that, what happened after the execution, uh, and we'll talk about the, Joe Hill's musical legacy and, uh, and legacy in general. Uh, more following the break, uh, just to mention that we have with us uh, Salt Lake Tribune reporter Tom Harvey and uh, Salt Lake Tribune director of photography Jeremy Harmon. They've been working for months on a, on a lot of reporting, new reporting on, on Joe Hill, uh, the events, his legacy, uh, his music, and uh, that'll be premiering, this uh, reporting, in a multimedia fashion on the Salt Lake Tribune uh, on Sunday. So go to the website, uh, sltrib.com on Sunday, pick up the paper, and you can uh, start to seeing all of uh, that, those interesting interviews. There's uh, music newly recorded and a lot of reporting as well. And we're hearing some excerpts on the program today. More following the break. Utah Governor Gary Herbert recently ordered state agencies to end the distribution of federal funds to the Planned Parenthood Association of Utah. And Utah Public Radio wants to hear from you. Have you used Planned Parenthood? Are you familiar with their services? What is your story? Share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories and could direct conversation and on-air coverage of the Planned Parenthood defunding. 
Join UPenn today and help us discover our most valuable source, you. Visit upr.org and click on Become a Source. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts Cache Valley New Horizons Orchestra, providing an opportunity for adults 40 and over to learn how to play a string instrument in an orchestral setting. Mondays and Wednesdays, noon to 2 p.m., September 14th through December 7th. Details at cashearts.org. There are women of many descriptions In this clear world as everyone knows Some are living in beautiful mansions And are wearing the finest of clothes There are blue-blooded queens and princesses With their charms made of diamond and pearl But the only and thoroughbred lady is a There's a song of Joe Hill, Rebel Girl, and he's, uh, I think, Jeremy Harmon referring here to uh, someone you made reference to earlier. I wonder if you'd talk about her a little bit more now, uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. Yeah, so uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was one of the prominent leaders in the IWW early on. Um, she was uh, known as just being a, a very powerful speaker. Uh, she could really motivate people, um, you know, a really good agitator, come in you know, speak to a crowd, get them really fired up, and then they want to go do something. And the something was join the IWW and get going. Um, this song was written while Hill, Hill was in prison, uh, not too long before he was executed. Um, you know, it was inspired by her. Um, the song has been used as a, uh, um, as a tool to recruit women into the union. You know, the IWW was, um, um, really interested in involving women in in the cause and in the fight and things like that. So there were a number of women who uh, had prominent positions, and she was one of them. Yeah, very interesting woman. We'll talk more about her perhaps on a different program. Um, so you talked earlier, Jeremy Harmon, about the the headline IWW must go. And those who f- thought that the execution of Joe Hill would precipitate this were sorely mistaken. Tom Harvey, I think, right? This this, uh, this exploded, and uh, Joe Hill did indeed become a martyr to the cause. He, he did indeed, but I don't think you could say that the union prospered very much uh, after that. Although, like I mentioned earlier, it still exists today. It has its headquarters in Chicago, and uh, it's still around, still trying to organize. Let's hear uh, a little bit. Uh, this is an interview with, is it Lori Taylor? Yes. Um, who's uh, organizing some Joe Hill events, I believe. Um, she's previously worked as an archivist. and Yeah, she was at the Smithsonian. Um, so let's hear this. She's uh, This is uh, number 57. She's talking about Hill's musical lineage. For me, it's music. Music is... Music shaped my thinking about the world. I, I think about this a lot. Joe Hill, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen. It's activism. They tried to shape their world, but they were also reporting on their world. It wasn't only that each of them in their own time period was reporting on and shaping people's thinking about society, but also that they reached to the next generation and then they became part of the story. So the Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie group as they got together in the late 30s writing their songs and they looked back to Wobblies and IWW and to Joe Hill in particular and they pulled his songs into their time period and gave it a new context and then they told the story you know about how he's there it's like a family story almost German like a family story that's interesting she she draws a direct line from Joe Hill down to Bruce Springsteen and uh, you could probably draw it further. You you did earlier to, to some punk music. Yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> okay, there I am. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, so I, I'm a big music fan 
And I'm one of those music fans who, uh, when I find something I like, I want to know what influenced it. And a lot of these things, as you trace them back, you know, it, it is like, you know, it's a, it's a family tree kind of thing. You know, you go back and you find where everything is, uh, what the source was. And there's a lot of aspects in, in American music. As you trace them back, you end up at this guy who was living in Murray, who was shot um, at the prison in November of 1915. You, you, you end up back at Joe Hill, which is um, you know, pretty remarkable that this, this I don't know, it's just, it's just amazing that that happens. Let's hear another uh, selection from uh, your interview with uh, Laurie Taylor. This is number 58. People will read a pamphlet once and they'll throw it away, but they, you know, it's the music worm that gets in your brain and won't let go. And people are propagandizing themselves over and over and they hear the words and, you know, you, you get the words in your head and then suddenly you really hear them after you've been hearing them maybe for years. Let's hear number 59 immediately here. This is Laura Taylor again. So why I do this is I still believe in the value of art for social justice, for action, not just for feeling good, but to get people to recognize that there's something important and that they need to put their feet on the ground to go do something about it. Laura Taylor uh, talking there. So... The message continues, at least to Laurie Taylor's mind. Uh, you had an interview with Duncan Phillips, uh, who talks about the fact that uh, Joe Hill put songs on hymn tunes. He was dabbled in cartoons. He wanted to reach the people wherever they were. And Duncan Phillips draws this forward to the Internet. He's hoping that children will go to the Internet and hear some of this labor message there. It's, um, it's really easy to find history now. You know, the, um, you know there, there's a... Uh, when I was a kid in school taking Utah history classes in the seventh grade, you know, uh, uh, Joe Hill wasn't mentioned. You know, I, I didn't hear of this guy and, until I read a book that uh, by uh, William Adler. You know, like that's, uh, you know, I'd kind of heard of him, but I didn't really know who he was until I read this Adler book. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot easier to find out uh, or to learn parts of history that maybe aren't covered in a, you know, classroom curriculum, things like that. The internet is a powerful tool for that. You know, people can know instantly what's happening all over the world. You know, there's all sorts of, um, like social movements now that, um, are springing up and organizing and becoming really effective, uh, because they're able to use, utilize social media, you know, like black lives matter mm-hmm. stuff, you know, like, um, people are aware of that and people are knowing what's going on and they're finding out in a way that, um, is much more immediate and much harder to ignore than perhaps we've been able to in the past. Tom Harvey, uh, just 30 seconds here at the end, uh, so to restating again, what, what is the big deal? There'll be a bunch of events, 100th anniversary of, uh, of Joe Hill's uh, death. What's, what's the legacy? It, it's, the enduring, it's the enduring legacy, of I think, of his music, his place in the labor movement, but also the enduring mystery of, of this whole thing. Did he commit the murders? If he did not, why didn't he save himself? Mm. Interesting. We'll leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, You can read and watch and hear much more about this uh, at the Salt Lake Tribune. And this, uh, all this reporting will be uh, premiering on Sunday. We pick up the paper and go to the website on Sunday, sltrib.com. And there will be uh, a a website going up with all of this uh, collected, joehill.sltrib.com. And we've been talking with... uh, reporter for the SL Trib, uh, Tom Harvey. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for the opportunity. And director of photography for the Trib, uh, Jeremy Harmon. Thanks. I enjoyed being here. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Logan Regional Hospital Nutrition Services, helping people live a healthier life through programs directed to prevent diabetes and heart disease. Information at loganregional.org. 
Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock.